Most of you know that uh, Darlene's mom went to heaven two days before the New Year started, just about a month ago. And I wanted to say thank you to all of you for your various expressions of love, the cards and all of that. Uh, Darlene's mom had been diagnosed with cancer, an aggressive form of cancer, almost a year ago. And the Lord was gracious to give us a few more months with her than the doctors originally expected. And in the closing weeks of her life, one of the things she did was plan her own memorial service right down to every detail, including what songs would be sung, who would sing, who didn't get to speak, and all of that. (laughs) She's very particular about it. And in fact, she asked me to bring the message, and she had a very specific request. She wanted me to preach a short message on her favorite passage of Scripture, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, which is not a text that I would have chosen for a funeral service, but it did seem fitting for the service she planned, and it turned out to be a really good choice. Anyway, she wanted it, again, short. She was very strict about that as well. So I think I preached for about 15 minutes or so, which is uncharacteristic for me, as you know. But several people who were there suggested to me afterward that I should expand what I said that day, come back to that passage and do a full message on it in Grace Life. And so that's what I want to do today. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, "'Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths.'" Or as I first memorized it, from the King James Version, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. I love that text. It's, it is one of the first passages of Scripture that I memorized as a new believer. It's a great text and I want to spend some time and explain why I love this text. The contours of those two verses say to us, the gospel, basically, it, this perfectly, let's, let me say it like this, this perfectly overlays the truth of the gospel. In other words, this passage fits the gospel like a custom-made glove. It is a great, concisely stated definition of what true saving faith looks like. It, it includes a call to faith, trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's a summons to self-denial, do not lean on your own understanding. And it's a mandate for obedience, in all your ways acknowledge Him. And it says all of those things in two very tight sentences. Now there are people today, I'm sure you know, who insist that you shouldn't call people to faith and urge them to obedience at the same time. You can't do that, they say, without compromising the gospel. If you, if you blend a call to obedience or tell people they need to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, in the context of giving them the gospel, they say, you've blended faith and works, and that's a bad thing. For example, there's a, there's a group of antinomians, people who hold to this theology, headquartered in the Dallas area who publish a magazine, I think, every other month, and they always send me a copy. It's a small group, but they're noisy. They know that I edited years ago the Gospel According to Jesus, worked on that with John MacArthur, and they hate that book. And so they keep sending me their magazine, and, and, and here is their whole reason for existing as an organization. 
They believe that when you are preaching the gospel, you should never make any mention of obedience or repentance or the lordship of Christ. They say it's wrong to tell unbelievers anything about Jesus' calls to obedience and self-denial. They even insist that if you urge sinners to repent, you are corrupting the gospel. Don't ever preach repentance along with the gospel, they say. And they point to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And they wrongly infer from that text that faith and works are practically hostile to one another so that they, they must never be mentioned in the same breath. Don't ever mention obedience and faith together. And in fact, it's not just those guys in Dallas. Some of our Lutheran and Reformed brothers make a similar mistake. They have a tendency, and perhaps you've heard this, they have a tendency to claim that any mention of holiness or obedience is legalistic, that if you call believers to holy living, they say, you are undermining the principle of grace. They're all in favor of proclaiming the promises of the Bible, but if you point out any of the Bible's imperatives, the commandments, they will say you are confusing law and gospel, you're blending law and gospel. And if you listen to the way some of them teach, you might conclude that the moral law that is set forth in Scripture is of no real use at all to the believing Christian, because we're not under law. They, they, they love that. That kind of theology is sheer folly, and I want to show you why from this text. Now, as you know, if you've listened to me very long, I do strongly believe that it is important, vitally important, to make a clear distinction between law and gospel. But there is a place for preaching both. The law is the necessary prelude to preaching the gospel, and the law also plays a necessary role in the life of faith for every true believer. If you spurn the law of God, that is not the fruit of faith. In other words, in fact, let me borrow language from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says, God's law is of great use to true believers. As a rule of life, it informs us about God's will and our duty, and it directs and binds us to walk in accordance with the law. It also uncovers the sinful pollutions of our nature, our hearts, and our lives, so that as we examine ourselves in the light of God's law, it humbles us and it gives us a hatred for sin. It also reminds us of how desperately we need Christ and how desperately we need the perfection of His obedience. Christ, you know, obeyed the law perfectly, and we are commanded to follow His steps so that true believers should strive to obey the moral principles of God's law. The, the, of course, the dietary laws have specifically been abrogated. Christ declared all foods clean. And according to Colossians 2 and also the book of Hebrews, the ceremonial aspects of the law, the feast days, the temple worship, especially the sacrificial system, these were foreshadowings of Christ and His work, and so now they're unnecessary. But there are underlying moral principles that reflect an unchanged and unchanging and unchangeable standard of righteousness because they display the eternal character of a holy God. And so those, those principles of the law cannot be swept aside ever. 
So the law is full of commandments that we need to hear and obey, even though we know our works don't earn us any merit with God. Because, after all, we also know that sin dishonors God and it incurs His displeasure. David was a justified believer, fully forgiven, but 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says that when David sinned with Bathsheba, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So while it's true that our good works don't earn any merit with God, our sin does incur His fatherly disapproval. And furthermore, you can't even define what sin is apart from the law. 1 John 3, 4 defines sin as lawlessness, or in the words of King James Version, sin is the transgression of the law. In fact, one of the implied lessons of our text is that good works are the natural and necessary fruit of genuine faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and He will make straight your paths. Trusting the Lord, in other words, will keep us on the straight and narrow path. In other words, far from, far from being incompatible with faith or an obstacle to faith, obedience, good works, are the expected result of true faith, the kind of faith that acknowledges God in all of our ways. Again, faith is the cause, not the result of holy living. Obedience is the fruit, not the root of faith, but faith and obedience are not adversarial. Don't ever think of it that way. I've made this point many times before, but it always bears repeating. Law and gospel must be distinguished from one another, just like faith and works must be distinguished from one another. But you can't set them at odds against each other as if they were hostile or incompatible ideas. They're not. Each has a legitimate role in the work of our salvation. Faith lays hold of the perfect righteousness of Christ and and secures our justification before God. Good works are the inevitable result. It's true that Ephesians 2 says, salvation is the gift of God, not a result of works. But the very next verse goes on to say, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in in them." So works are the result of salvation. Wherever true faith is found, good works will inevitably follow. And also the, the message of the law is bad news, and the message of the gospel is good news, but the two are nevertheless in absolute agreement. Because the law presents God's righteousness as the standard that justifies the condemnation of sinners. The reason sinners are condemned is because God is righteous. The gospel then explains how the work of Christ has turned the righteousness of God in favor of those who believe in Him, so that when God forgives sin, He is faithful and just to do so. So divine grace doesn't overthrow righteousness. It recognizes simply that Christ has already fulfilled the demands of perfect righteousness on behalf of those who believe. And then, Titus 2.12, God's grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. It's what the Christian life is all about. So it is perfectly appropriate to speak 
the way this text does, calling people to faith and obedience in one comprehensive summons. That is precisely how Jesus and the apostolic writers preached the gospel, okay? That's the whole lordship issue in a, in a simple statement. And if it seems like I've spent a long time on a point that you might not have noticed even in your reading of this text, that's because that is an important point, and it is there in this text. It's, it's really the very point these two verses are making, namely that faith comes before obedience, and wholehearted trust in the Lord then is the necessary foundation of authentic holy living. So now look with me at this text, and, and we'll start with its immediate context. You know, we tend to think of the book of Proverbs as a string of one-liners. These are pithy sayings that convey important life lessons, and in fact, that is what Proverbs are. That's where the word comes from. Proverbs, they're aphorisms. They are wise sayings. And it's true that many verses in Proverbs, including our text, are capable of standing alone as wise sayings in just one or two verse segments. But these two verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, are also part of a larger poetic passage that starts actually in verse 1 and ends in verse 12. We read it this morning. Twelve verses, and notice there are six couplets here. They alternate the verses between admonitions followed by arguments. In other words, one verse gives us a command, and the very next verse gives a reason why you should obey this command. And it does that six times in a row, twelve verses total. There are six of these couplets. In fact, look at them. Verse 1, here's the admonition. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Then verse 2 answers with the reason for that. Here's the argument. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So obey, and you get a long, peaceful life. Couplet number 2, verse 3. Here's the admonition. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, and that's followed by verse 4, which gives an argument for that. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Then our text is the third couplet. I'm going to skip it for now. We'll come back to it. Fourth couplet, you have the admonition in verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil, followed by the argument, verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The fifth couplet. Admonition, verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, followed by the argument, verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bur- bursting with wine. And then the sixth and last couplet starts with the admonition in verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, followed by an argument, verse 12, because the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father the Son in whom He delights." And so you have these six commands that tell us in order to learn wisdom, verse 1, to be steadfast in love and faithfulness, verse 3, to trust implicitly in the Lord, verse 5, to fear the Lord, verse 7, to honor the Lord in our stewardship, verse 9, and to welcome the Lord's correction, verse 11. And the alternate verses then give us reasons why we should live with these as our priorities. 
And the arguments answer that question, each one of them. Verse 2, because it's the best way to a long and peaceful life. Verse 4, because it's the key to both earthly and heavenly success. Verse 6, because it makes all of life better. Verse 8, because it promotes your general health. Verse 10, it's the path to real prosperity. And verse 12, because it signifies the Lord's blessing on you personally. So all of those reasons have to do with a kind of spiritual prosperity. You want to be spiritually prosperous? Obey these six commandments. Now, all of this, of course, like the whole book of Proverbs, is given to us as general wisdom. Understand, throughout the book of Proverbs, you have these truisms. They're not ironclad promises, you know, because some people do live faithfully and die young. Godly people do get sick and suffer, and many solid, sound believers are materially poor. So these aren't ironclad promises. This is not the way to get rich and live long. I mean, it's not a promise that you will if you do these things. But it's saying that in general, these are trustworthy principles of prudent living. God's wisdom tends to be rewarded with blessing, even earthly blessing. But on the other hand, carnal foolishness brings disaster. Galatians 6 verse 8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And by the way, these principles hold true at the social level as well as the individual level. When an entire nation or ethnic culture spurns these principles of godly wisdom, you'll see an increase in poverty and homelessness and general misery and even death, the death rate goes up. And I hope you see that's obvious even from the changes that have taken place in California culture just in the course of my lifetime. Ungodly living increases poverty and misery and even death. Anyway, we want to focus on verses 5 and 6. This is a familiar passage. And I'm sure it is a favorite verse, if not the favorite verse, for a lot of you. It's a text that gets quoted so frequently that you might know it by heart, even if you've never made a point of memorizing it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. These verses are frequently misunderstood and misapplied, and so... I need to start by correcting another common misconception, then we'll talk about why this is such a rich text and how perfectly it meshes with gospel truth. Let me address the way this text is generally misread. You may have misconstrued this text yourself if you ever thought that this phrase, do not lean on your own understanding, means that it's a good thing to switch off your rational faculties and and live by your feelings instead. A lot of people quote this verse to make, try to make that point. I constantly hear people misapply this text in precisely that way. They quote it as if it tells us to switch off our minds and, and just get in tune with our feelings. And, and in fact, that idea goes, frankly, too well with the spirit of our age. Unfortunately, we live in a time, you know, where how you feel about something becomes more important than the objective truth about the thing. That's an idea that was foreign to Christian thought for 1,800 years or more. And then sometime in the early 
1800s, the famous Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who, by the way, considered himself a Christian, and he, he was a decent man, not the worst of all the philosophers, but he came up with a very bad idea. He proposed the idea that to have faith is to abandon reason and logic. And he pointed to the Old Testament passage where Abraham is commanded to sacrifice Isaac, and he suggested that this commandment made no rational sense because God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And in Genesis 21, 12, the Lord says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Isaac was supposed to be the channel through which many nations would come about, and therefore if Isaac was dead, the Lord's promise could never be fulfilled. So the commandment didn't make any sense. And Kierkegaard claims that commandment made no possible rational sense. It was absurd, but Abraham took that leap of faith anyway, and he's commended for it. And so Kierkegaard concluded that a blind leap of faith into irrational trust, he said that's the very essence of faith. It's irrational. And he insisted that when Scripture calls us to faith, we're being called to embrace something that is actually nonsensical, fundamentally opposed to the idea of logic, it's something preposterous. That's real faith. He taught that that's a pos positive and honorable thing. And that idea began to catch on. Lots of people began to think of faith as an irrational thing, a, a tangle of contradictions that somehow this kind of faith is superior to logic and common sense. And Kierkegaard's notion that faith is inherently irrational, that became the, the, the basis for existential philosophy, and a century later or so it gave birth to neo-orthodoxy, neo-orthodox theology, which glorifies irrationality. And it's an idea that has borne just bushels of rotten fruit over nearly two centuries now. Now, let me just point out, first of all, that the Bible itself debunks that whole notion that Abraham's faith was irrational. It wasn't irrational. Listen to Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, because he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. So Abraham had worked out in his mind how to reconcile God's promise and God's faithfulness with the sacrifice of Isaac. That's, the, that's what constituted his faith. It was perfectly rational. The faith he is commended for is the kind of faith that thinks through everything and finds a way to make good sense of both the promises and the commandments of God. But in the Late 19th century, lots of writers and philosophers embraced Kierkegaard's notion of faith is, is the abandonment of rational thought. And, and so that created two results. One side foolishly but willingly made that leap into a religion of sheer irrationality, and the other side rejected belief in faith, belief in God altogether. And it, it's a shame that so many capable minds believed that those were the only two choices. Either you're irrational or you're unbelieving. You can't be both. Candidly, if I thought faith required me to believe something that is absurd or self-contradictory, I wouldn't believe either. The notion that 
truth, something to be true and yet inconsistent with itself, that destroys the whole concept of truth. God is truth, and Scripture says He cannot deny Himself. 1 John 2.21, no lie is of the truth. Whatever contradicts a true statement is untrue. It can't be true. And, and in fact, those statements in Scripture wouldn't mean anything if we didn't believe in the logical coherence of truth. Truth doesn't contradict itself. But this idea that faith is the abandonment of rational consistency, that has gained lots of traction over the last two centuries. Mark Twain famously defined faith as believing something you know isn't true. Frederick Nietzsche said faith is not wanting to know what is true. And those weren't even entirely new ideas in Victorian times, more than a hundred years before Mark Twain. It was Benjamin Franklin who cynically said the way to see by faith is to shut the eye of reason. That idea became really the heart of modernism. Faith and truth are kind of incompatible, and the modernist therefore rejected everything that's supernatural, everything, every idea of revealed truth. Only science could give us solid truth, according to modernists. Postmodernism rejected that and basically, though, starts with the idea that you can't possibly perceive reality or understand truth in any way that makes good objective sense. So postmodernists have given up on the idea that truth makes sense, and it's become very common today to think of faith as something that requires us to switch off our intellect. Uh, in fact, I would guess, frankly, this is the majority opinion even among professing Christians. Charismatics say this stuff all the time, you know, empty your mind, clear your head of any conscious thought, surrender your being to an outside power, give in to your feelings, just let your passions take over instead of your rational mind. That's how modern speaking in tongues, frankly, that's how it works. It's why virtually you can teach virtually anyone to speak in tongues, but the result is never a rational, translatable, understandable message. In fact, let me illustrate what I mean. This is how, I'm going to quote from a well-known charismatic leader, this is how he teaches people to speak in tongues. He says, quote, "'Do not think of the sounds of the language. Just trust God and make the sounds rapidly so that you don't try to think.'" And then he adds, "'The reason some of you don't speak in tongues fluently is that you try to think of the sounds. Don't try to think. You don't have to think in order to pray in the Spirit.'" And often you'll hear people try to support notions like that by quoting our text, Proverbs 3, 5, "'Trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding,' as if that's what this means. But that interpretation of this text is rooted in a wrong idea of faith. The, the whole notion that faith is something inherently irrational is actually the very essence of unbelief. That's not faith at all. And that whole attitude is also, think about it, this is antithetical to the central message of the whole book of Proverbs. It's a lie that undermines faith in the gospel as well because, think about it, the gospel is grounded in historical fact. The gospel is the distilled essence of true doctrine, and you cannot genuinely lay hold of gospel truth if you disengage your intellect. You can't do it. And by the way, if you understand what the Old Testament writers meant when they spoke of the heart, you would never try to use this verse 
as a plea to subjugate your mind to your feelings. Because in Hebrew, the word heart refers to the seat of, uh, of your thoughts. It's never, it's never the seat of the emotions. In, instead, the Old Testament writers used a word, if they wanted to refer to the seat of your emotions, they used a word that referred to the bowels as the place where you feel emotion. And they were, of course, talking about the inner organs, the viscera, all the organs that are contained in your torso. They were including the heart and the liver and the lungs. And frankly, that is a more accurate description of where we feel a physical sensation when our passions rise. It's why we speak of gut feelings. It's almost the same idea as the Hebrew expression. The Hebrew expression, the heart, that's gut feeling with passion. In fact, let me give you an illustration. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 4, for example, the Shunammite woman says this, "'My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him.'" That's the King James Version. And the verse doesn't sound very elegant by today's standard. But you could, just as literally, you could translate it like this. Here's what it's actually saying. My beloved put his hand by the door latch, and my whole inner being sighed for him. On the other hand, throughout the Old Testament, when when you see the word heart, not bowels, but heart, that normally signifies the seat of your thoughts. The heart in the Hebrew vernacular is the place where decisions are made. That's where meditation takes place. That's where you ponder what you know. So biblically, the heart includes your rational faculties and your desires and your values and your will and your attitude and even your moods. All of that is incorporated in the Hebrew idea of the heart, which obviously, to a lesser degree, it includes certain things that you feel, but the focus always is on the intellect, the seat of our thoughts. And if you think about it, as a matter of fact, when the way we perceive our own moods and attitudes and desires, we perceive those things in the mind. No Old Testament saint would ever think for a moment that it's a good thing to detach your rational faculties from your feelings, because to them, the suggestion that faith might bypass the mind, to them that would be a hideous, unthinkable notion, and it's an idea that ought to be repugnant to all of us. Faith is grounded in truth, and you can't receive truth at all if you don't apprehend it in a rational, cognitive fashion. Truth is not something you feel. I hope you get that. Anyway, the the popular notion of our time is that faith and reason are hostile to one another, but that was a fairly late development in human thinking. Nobody thought that way until about 200 years ago. You don't find any hint of that in Scripture or in the early church, at least through the first ten centuries. Anselm was perhaps the greatest of all the medieval Christian writers. Just to put him in context, his life and ministry straddled the 11th and 12th centuries, right around the year 1000 and before and after. And he famously defended theology and defined it this way. He said, theology is faith-seeking understanding. I love that definition. True faith always seeks both wisdom and understanding, and in fact, that is the starting point and the entire message of the whole book of Proverbs. 
And go back a couple of chapters, Proverbs 1, verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Do you see anything in there about feelings? It's clear, isn't it, that Solomon is not going to tell us in chapter 3 to switch off our brains and seek some kind of mystical, irrational, otherworldly enlightenment through our feelings. Not at all. In fact, here is the actual point of the proverb, chapter 1, verse 7, right where I stopped reading, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, understanding actually begins with faith. You don't turn off your brain in order to get faith. Understanding begins with faith. It's the kind of faith that approaches God with reverent fear and humility. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But true faith in Scripture is never rightly expressed with the haughty pretense of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Those are Paul's words from 1 Corinthians. Proverb does not tell us to switch off our rational intellectual faculties. It tells us not to make our own limited grasp of truth the object of our faith. In other words, let God and His Word be the arbiter in your mind of what is true and reliable, not just the limited capabilities of your own mind. But let God be true and every man a liar, to borrow another Scripture text. Because after all, human wisdom and human philosophies, even the very best of scholarly opinions, are constantly in flux. You see that even within a decade or so. And therefore, your own understanding is not a safe resting place. And so Solomon says, don't lean on it, don't rely on it, but subject it to the revealed truth of God rather than vice versa. God's Word and His truth are fixed and unchanging and trustworthy. You cannot rationally say that about human understanding. It's not fixed. It's not reliable. It's not trustworthy. And it, it's not unchanging. And that's the point here. As we've said, this text is a call to faith. It's also a summons to self-denial, and it's also a mandate for obedience, all packed together in, one, in two sentences. So let's briefly consider this text with those three ideas in mind. It's a call to faith, it's a summon to self-denial, and it's a mandate for obedience. And along the way, I think it will become obvious to you why I say that the contours of this text perfectly fit with the gospel message. Let's look at it closely. First, this passage is a call to faith, and you see that on the face of it. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That is precisely what the gospel calls us to, isn't it? Wholehearted faith. In fact, here's a statement that might shock you if you've overdosed on, you know, typical evangelical preaching. The Lord is not asking to have first place in our hearts. The Lord is not asking to have first place in our hearts. He demands to be our all. Genuine faith is not when you add Jesus to a list of things that interest you. 
True saving faith recognizes that He is Lord of all. This is not calling for a a glib nod of superficial agreement to something that you've heard and you just can't refute. That's not faith. This is calling for an unqualified, unfeigned, unreserved embrace of the truth. And as the gospel makes clear, that entails a wholehearted acquiescence to Christ and, and a love for this person who is the very incarnation of truth. You know, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. And then in the very next verse, Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. In other words, to know Christ is to know God. To know Him truly is to believe in Him and to love Him with a whole heart. And all of that is embodied by implication in this opening verse of Proverbs 3 verse 5, just the opening phrase, trust in the Lord, that is, trust in the true Lord with all your heart. Jeremiah 17, 7 echoes all of this. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. You want to be blessed? You want to be blessed with eternal life? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's really the gospel. It's a clear summons to faith And the most oft-repeated promise of the gospel is that if you believe, you will be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 again, for by grace are you saved through faith. John 3, 16, whoever believes in the only begotten Son of God will not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 36, whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you get nothing else from this passage, don't miss that it starts with this call to faith, and it demands a serious answer. Not a swift and easy glib answer, but a serious answer. This is not a command to attempt your own self-renovation. He is not saying that you need to first fix what's wrong with you, and then the Lord will receive you. He's saying that the Lord Himself will make straight your paths if you trust completely in Him rather than buying the devilish lie that you can rely on your own thoughts and your own native abilities to get where you need to be. You can't do that. So there's an implied promise of salvation here. Maybe it's explicit. The Lord will make straight your paths. That's talking about salvation. Matthew 7, 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You cannot walk that path without deviating from it. The truth is you've already deviated from it more than you care to admit, but if you put your trust in the Lord, He will make He will make straight your path. Scripture's full of this promise, by the way. Those who seek salvation from sin are not ever given a long to-do list. The way to this blessing is simple and clear. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Jesus said in John 3.18, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And in John 5.24, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He will not come into condemnation, but has passed from death to life. So this call to faith is critically important. It's the starting point, 
not only of our text, this is the starting point of true Christianity. And it's fitting that it's the first phrase of our passage, not only our passage, but countless other texts in the Old Testament. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. 2 Chronicles 20, 20, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. It's all the same truth that's taught in our text. It's a simple call to faith, right? Is that clear? Now notice the next phrase. It's a summons to self-denial. And this is the second half of verse 5. Do not lean on your own understanding. Now, don't misconstrue what this is saying. In the words of my friend Dan Phillips, who wrote a book on Proverbs, he says, the idea here is not that we should wait mystically upon God with our minds passive and all a-quiver, but that we must learn and understand and memorize and put into practice the Word of God. And, and let me add, we must recognize that God's Word and God's Word alone is the absolute inviolable, inviolable authority when it comes to judging what is true and what's not. You can't make that judgment reliably from your own mind. It's the Word of God that that tells us absolutely and infallibly what is true. And this, candidly, seems to be the hardest part of this text for even church-going people to grasp and submit to. There are multitudes who profess to be Christians, and perhaps they really do think that they are trusting in the Lord with all their hearts, but they subject the revealed truth of God to their own prejudices. They let their interpretation of Scripture, or even they let their willingness to believe the Bible, be artificially shaped and carefully controlled by their political opinions, or their private moral preferences, or their idea of what's most convenient, or most socially acceptable, or most politically correct, or whatever, which is why you have multitudes of Christians today arguing that it's okay for same-sex marriage and you know, women leadership in the church, women to preach, women to be pastors, all sorts of texts in Scripture that are not really convenient if you want to go by what's popular today. And Christians find their way to tweak their interpretation to accommodate those desires. They lean on their own understanding, and then they try to bend Scripture to fit what they already think. They make their own understanding the authority to which they subject the truth of God. That's just backwards, and it's not faith. It's not trusting in the Lord with all your heart. It's the antithesis. When Jesus called His disciples to self-denial, He was expressly forbidding them to set themselves up as the arbiters of what's true and what's, what's right. Scripture says everywhere, that human wisdom divorced from the revealed truth of God is sheer folly. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, the wisdom of this world is folly with God, and the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That's God speaking. Proverbs 28.26 says this, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Sin has so affected the fallen mind of unredeemed humanity that apart from the grace of God in our hearts, we can't even grasp what true wisdom is. Of the world's intelligentsia, 
Scripture says, their foolish hearts have been darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You see that in the headlines every day, right? Jeremiah 10, 14 is even more blunt. It says, every man is stupid and without knowledge. If I, you know, sign a book for you and put that verse under the... I won't do that. But the point is, is right in line with our verse. Do not rely on your own understanding. That's stupid. There's no better word for it. Thomas Manton, who was one of the great Puritan preachers, said this. He said, next to depending on our own righteousness, leaning on our own understanding is the greatest of all evils. Verse 7, the, the verse immediately following our text says this, be not wise in your own eyes. As a matter of fact, to to be wise in your own eyes is the sheer antithesis of real faith. Now, you understand, you've heard Pastor MacArthur say this all the time, that believers, genuine believers, are slaves of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Peter and Paul and James and John, all of them introduced their New Testament epistles by calling themselves slaves of Christ. Paul told the Galatians, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. If you are a believer, you should think of yourself that way. You're a slave of Christ. Romans 6.18, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness, His righteousness. Romans 6.22, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. In other words, If you are a believer, if you're genuinely a believer, you are not entitled to any opinion that conflicts with the revealed truth of God. Trust in the Lord. This is what the Old Testament sage means when he says, trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. You can't righteously hold an opinion that conflicts with God's revealed truth. This is what Jesus was calling for, part of what He he meant, when He said, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up His cross daily and follow Me. The Hebrew verb that is used in our text is instructive. Do not lean, it says. It could be translated, do not prop yourself up. This image of someone using his own intellectual prowess to prop himself up, it's an obnoxious thing, isn't it? see people do this all the time. happens all the time, even among some of the most dare I say this, even among some of the most respected and influential evangelical leaders. Too many of them seem to think their intellectual aptitude or their academic status is a suitable platform for them to stand and represent Christ, or they treat an advanced degree like a lectern to prop themselves up while they opine on culture and all sorts of things. They don't preach. They don't seem to know what it is to instruct or exhort with real patience and passion, and they refuse to rebuke or reprove with the authority of God's Word, you know, they might be willing to sign an orthodox doctrinal statement, and they'll point to that fact as if that seals the question of how faithful they are, but they show little or no courage when it comes to actually defending the truth against popular falsehoods. Instead, they, they give lofty expositions of popular culture or rambling lectures about the latest academic trends, or in the worst cases, they give moralistic and therapeutic discussions about 
the human dilemma or human relationships or human ideas about social and economic justice. It's all very man-centered and politically correct because underlying it is a very self-centered tendency to lean on their own understanding rather than the authority and accuracy of God's Word. They are, in the words of verse 7, wise in their own eyes. The visible church, frankly, is overrun with characters like that. And I think if you simply survey the award-winning books from the evangelical publishing industry, you'll see what I mean. Solomon was literally the wisest man who ever lived, at least during the part of his life when he wrote these Proverbs. He went off track too, by the way, but when he was writing this, he was considered the wisest man who ever lived, and he says, our innate understanding of merely human wisdom, uninformed by the revealed truth of God, is a woefully insufficient stanchion on which to lean. Don't lean on it. This prohibition, don't lean on your own understanding, furthermore suggests that there is a better, more sure, more sturdy place where we should lean. Because if my own innate understanding of things is too fragile a place for me to rest my worldview, or or as we've seen already, you know, I can't abandon my rational thought in favor of just my own gut feeling, then there must be a place where a wise person, because Solomon's telling us, be wise, get understanding, there has to be a place where we can get true, sound, reliable understanding. And of course, every attentive reader of the Bible knows exactly what Solomon is talking about there. He's saying that the only infallible source of wisdom and understanding is the Word of God, the revealed truth of God, Scripture. In the words of the psalmist, Psalm 119.24, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Your Word is what gives me light. God's Word, as recorded in Scripture, is the only eternal and reliable foundation on which we can erect a viable worldview. It's the only source from which we can and should draw our most fundamental beliefs and values. This is the sole repository of spiritual truth that is absolute and authoritative and eternally unchanging. You know, late in his life, the Apostle Peter recalled that vivid experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw with his own eyes the glory of Christ on full display, and then immediately after describing that, he writes, but we have something more sure, the prophetic word, he's talking about the written word of God, to which he says you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Everything else is dark by comparison. The Word of God is the one light that should guide us. Solomon is essentially naming one very important and practical way that we have to answer our Lord's call to take up His cross and follow. This is step one in a lifetime of self-denial. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't think you can prop yourself up or, or figure out the hard questions of life with your own smarts. Submit your mind to the truth of of God's Word. Once more, in case you missed it, that doesn't mean you can switch off your rational faculties. It means the opposite. You need to discipline that prodigious intellect with truth revealed by the one who is the source of all truth. 
And so our text is a call to faith and a summons to self-denial. Now, third and finally, it's also a mandate for obedience. Verse 6, this is a summons to comprehensive obedience. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Obedience is the natural and inevitable fruit of faith and self-denial. It's the whole point of self-denial. You deny yourself precisely because you want to exalt Christ. We acknowledge Him by, by giving Him the worship and obedience that He is due. Or in the words of John the Baptist, He must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, you can't exalt Christ and disobey Him at the same time. If you disobey, you are refusing to acknowledge Him. Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. Or Romans 6.18 again, having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. That's where your obedience is due. One of the defining features of all true believers, let's say first, One of the defining features of all unbelievers, according to Ephesians 2 verse 12, is that they are without God in the world. In other words, they want to live and behave and form their own thoughts and values independently of God and in opposition to His Word. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's Romans 8 verse 7. But by contrast, your goal, if you are a true believer, the the one mark of a genuine believer is that whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you want to do it all to the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. In all your ways acknowledge Him, meaning glorify Him, obey Him. If you truly love Him, why would you neglect to acknowledge Him in all your ways? We all do. Why? It's inconsistent with who we are and what we profess to believe. And the Proverbs are full of this same piece of wise counsel. It's restated again and again in different language each time, but the principle is always the same. Proverbs 16, verse 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Here in our text it says, He will make straight your paths. Proverbs 15, 19 says, the path of the upright is a level highway. Same idea. Two verses later, Proverbs 15, verse 21, you read this, a man of understanding walks straight ahead. And Proverbs 11, verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. And all of those verses are affirming the principle that wickedness and foolishness and disobedience tend to make our lives harder, but righteousness tends to smooth out the bumps in life. And again, that's a truism. It's not an ironclad guarantee. You'll still hit some road bumps, even if you're as a righteous person. But this is still a simple matter of wisdom, and in the long scope of eternity, it does always work out this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that does yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf doesn't wither, and in everything he does, he prospers. Now, I need to stress again that none of this means that your works as a believer are meritorious. You don't earn God's favor by good works or religious ceremony or any other form of human work. Ephesians 2, 8 again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
So once more, obedience is the fruit, not the cause of salvation. But it is also a general truism that the Lord blesses those who trust and obey. He directs their way. He makes their path straight. He eliminates some of the obstacles and afflictions that we would face if we just abandoned ourselves to our own understanding. And that is how this passage fits the gospel like a glove. You might say, this is a condensed version of gospel truth, just brilliantly packed into two verses. It calls us to faith. It exhorts those who trust the Lord to deny themselves. It urges them to obedience, and it promises rich blessings for those who walk the walk of faith. The gospel simply expands and illuminates every phrase of the passage. The Lord in whom we are to trust is Christ. That's what the gospel tells us. He is God incarnate who paid for the sins of His people by dying on the cross and then rising from the grave. He is the one true mediator between God and man. He is the one who deserves our trust. The self-denial that this speaks of begins with a repudiation of self-sufficiency, and it also calls us to be willing to follow Christ all the way to the cross. You will never see the beauty and grandeur of being the slave of Christ, as long as you lean on your own understanding. But if the gospel informs your understanding, you'll be irresistibly drawn to Him in awe and in love, willingly His slave. And if that is true of you, you will have a desire to acknowledge Him and honor Him in all your ways. And as a result, He will make straight your paths. You see how this passage is filled out and perfectly explained by the gospel, points us to gospel truth. This is not, this two-verse text is not just a clever but hackneyed cliché. It's good news. It's the best possible news. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we confess we are prone, even as believers, to lean on our own wisdom, to, to let our love grow cold, to let our faith get weak. Keep us walking in true wisdom. May we acknowledge You in all our ways. May we glorify You whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, and may Christ be exalted and praised through our loving obedience to His commandments. We pray in His name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.